So our Christmas time readings this morning in the Old Testament especially draw our attention to hear the word of the Lord and to proclaim it, as the text says, in distant coastlands. And that the Lord is going to save his people and gather them from the ends of the earth. And then John, using a highly unique birth narrative, right? This is nothing like we see in Matthew, nothing like we see in Luke. They're very earthy and, um, you know, very um, concrete and very specific about this story. And John here seems to be flying at not 40,000 or 60,000, but maybe 100,000 feet and, and trying to say something to us about what all this means. What's going on here? Um, what's happening in the incarnation and what are its effects? I think for John, he's trying to answer the question, what's going on in the birth of this child? And so he says to us that in Jesus was life and that this life, and I want you to try to picture the best you can, I know this is really hard for all of us, but try to picture the very best you can the real person Jesus, his life, as he actually lived it with two feet on this earth, his life. That life was the light of all mankind. This is what John wants us to understand. That Jesus was the true light, he's the one who gives light to everyone, he's this great light shining in the darkness, yet people didn't get it. If John were writing today, he might say something like they weren't feeling it. They just weren't feeling it. That actually most people really didn't get it. They couldn't see or discern or understand what was going on in this bright light. And so, as John said, even his own people didn't receive him. But John goes on to say, I'm writing this, and John the Baptist was bearing witness to this light and life that was in Jesus. And then this is really important, that. If you look at your text, your gospel reading this morning. John was bearing witness, John the Baptist was bearing witness, the gospel of John says, that people might come to place their confidence in Jesus and trust him and follow him. Well, again, it doesn't take a, a great theologian or a sociologist of religion to say that people aren't particularly getting Jesus today either. And they're certainly not particularly getting, quote, the Christian religion. And that the conversation, you might say, between the church and the world is more awkward than it's ever been. Well, again, anybody in this room who's ever gone fishing will understand this, this little axiom. You catch fish on their terms, not yours. You say, well, what do you mean, Todd? Like, isn't that compromise? No, it's actually very simple. If, if, if the altar this morning maybe represented a, a big oblong lake, if all the fish are very deep in the water and eating a certain kind of food, if you present bait on top of the water and it's not what they're eating, it doesn't matter how sincere you are. It doesn't matter how historical your bait is. Well, this is what my family's always used. You catch fish on their terms, not yours. If the fish are eating at sunup, 
and you roll out of bed at 11 because you had a few too many beers the night before, the fish aren't gonna go, okay, let's give this guy a break. We'll, we'll eat when the sun's up. No, they won't because you catch fish on their terms, not ours. And what this requires of the church in every age is to learn to be simultaneously anchored to the rock who is this light Jesus while being geared to their times. Because, you know, Dylan wasn't the first one to understand that the times they are changing. They have been changing for 2,000 years. And so the church has always had to learn to not compromise but to incarnate herself in the world such that the world could understand who she is and how she could continue to be this light, which is the light of all men. So I don't have time to like go deeply into all these things, obviously in a 15 or 20 minute sermon, but I just wanna raise some issues right now. Because I want you to mostly, I don't even care if you even understand most of what I'm gonna say in the next five minutes, but I want you to at least feel it. I want you to feel the tension that's going on, and then I'll relieve the tension for you. But first, most people today don't get, probably the number one thing that people don't get about Christianity is its claim to exclusivity. That how can you possibly say that Christianity is the only one true religion? And how could you possibly say that Jesus is the only way to heaven? This doesn't make any sense, especially when Christians, this is what people will say, and they mean it with their whole heart, especially when Christians are some of the worst people I know in my life, and my next door neighbor, who's a Buddhist, is maybe the best person I know in my life. She's the kindest, most loving, hospitable, generous. How can you tell this makes no sense? Well, I get how people think that way, but actually what they're thinking doesn't make sense, because every approach to God So whether you wanna call it a world religion like Islam or Buddhism or Christianity or the more custom designer ones that we have today where people are picking and choosing, all of them are by definition exclusionary. Because once you, listen to me, once you have enough particularity to have a religion or an approach to religion, that same particularity that allows you to know what it is that holds you together, that creates a boundary. Are you feeling me here? Once you have enough particularity to say this is who we are, that boundary by itself says some people are in that or out of it, and some people are moving towards it, and some people are moving away from it. So even somebody who says there is no God or that Christianity can't be the only way, they themselves are saying something that embraces some or excludes others, so there's no way of getting around this. But that's not a problem just for us, the church. That's a problem for anybody who wants to try to say anything meaningful about God. See, because to say something meaningful, you have to say something particular. Are you following me here? I know it's a Sunday morning, but hang with me here for a minute. Once you've said something particular, then people, you've sort of drawn a line. And and people have to just decide where they are in that. So So we don't have... Uh, the luxury of saying particularity or not or communities or not that are, that are defined, but here's what you do have. Pick the community that you think best represents God and his purposes. And I actually, I actually say this to young people. If you think Buddha is superior to Jesus and his understanding of life, well then follow Buddha and follow him with your whole heart. Not just namaste, 
you know, when you greet somebody. But go do it. But give Jesus a chance. And listen to Jesus' explanation for the world. It's, it's beginning and it's end. And if, and if you think Hinduism has a better explanation for the world, then go for it. But not just this sort of sloppy stuff that says I'm not sure about any religion because all of these religions are making claims about the earth. So we can't back off on that. But what we can humbly say is, yes, there are lots of exclusive particular religious communities out there. You should seriously think about it. And you should pick the community that you think best represents God and his purposes. Well, the second thing people stumble over today is fundamentalism or a kind of fanatical religion, uh, especially the, what's called the new atheists today really see religion as the problem on the earth, that Christianity and all religion is evil, and they got a point. I mean, you can point to places in human history where religion has been the problem, but it's not the only thing to be said because I can also point to thousands of other things where Christianity was the answer. Most of the hospitals in this world, founded and built by Christians, educational systems, systems of benevolence and charity, you can just go on and on and on. But I don't think we should say that defensively, not necessarily. You know what we can say? Hey, well, good point. Even Jesus was critical of religious malpractice. Jesus was deeply critical of religious malpractice. And in fact, the biggest running issues he had were with people who were malpracticing the Judaism of his day and completely misunderstanding the God who created and called them. So, it, so we Christians can join our Jesus in even being sort of a prophetic voice against religious malpractice. Well, the third thing, and this is one of the ones that raises its head all the time over the 2,000 years, is what about pointless evil and suffering? How can a good and powerful God allow it? Well, again, we, might, we don't have time to get into a whole big theodicy this morning or understanding of suffering and the good and just God, but we can at least say this. Can we at least admit that the bias we bring to this question with the word pointless is a very deep bias? Now you just need to sit with that for a second. The perspective we bring to this, I might say a, a prejudice, but I mean that benignly. The prejudice we bring to this with pointless suffering and evil, and that's what bothers most of us, is a very deep prejudice. And maybe the thing that gets us off on a wrong track. And of course, it just means to say that evil and suffering maybe has some purpose in what God's doing and, and maybe someday we'll see it and understand it. Well next, a lot of people think that Christianity's narrow and boring, you know, that it restricts my choices on morals and truth and history and pluralism and multiculturalism. And again, I get it, I, I get how people feel that way. And I'm not so much saying these things so that, you know, I'm, I'm not like arming you to go out and be argumentative with people. But again, I'm trying to create a little tension, but also resolve it here and there where I can. And I just want to say to you, do you know what the truth is? Everybody look me in the eye. No religion even comes close to how well Christianity has adapted in every culture, every time, every space. And where this story is going is every tongue, every tribe, every nation, Every language will find themselves deeply loved and accepted by God. That's our story.
That's where this thing's going. It's the apostle Paul who had the guts to say, in Christ there is no slave, nor free, no Jew, no Scythian, no barbarian, no male, nor female. That's our story. Our story is not a story of, you know, we don't flex to be in other cultures. It's ridiculous. It's the exact opposite. But what's happening today is the, the, these sort of implicit morals of our story aren't really appreciated. And so people are pushing against that because people want their own way on various things. And so then they're hoping that, you know, Christianity could somehow be more flexible or whatever, but that's a moral problem. That's not a problem with Christianity itself. And then of course people stumble over heaven and hell and you know, wondering about God's justice and his judgment and all that. And I've said this before, so just to say it again quickly, look, without the justice of God, there, there would be no goodness that would ever come to earth. It is the justice of God and his final justice that will bring his ultimate goodness to earth. And then people, you know, fuss over science and Christianity. You know, the idea today is that science and Christianity can't coexist, that, you know, you can't have the Bible and young earth and creation and evolution. And the kind of the idea is that science is one. And it's true that science, while it rightly focuses on natural things and natural causes, which is what it should properly do, it's not actually fair to say, it doesn't follow to say, that science has proven that there are no non-natural causes. I mean, that is a huge leap. You cannot say that science has proved that there's nothing non-natural that causes things. Now, do they faithfully study and rightfully study natural things and their causes? Yes, and they should. And you know what? We should have no beef with that. To the degree that science understands what God exhaled from his being the church doesn't have any issue with that. Go, go on, scientists, I love it. A couple hours from now, I'm gonna get on an airplane and head to Orlando, and I'm really glad that some, some scientist understands aerodynamics. I don't. I mean, to this day, I'm a grown man. Whenever I have to go to Australia or New Zealand and we go under the earth, I still don't get why the airplane doesn't go upside down. How, like, how does that work? How do we like, I don't get it. And I never feel the airplane sort of turn over, so it, I don't get it. You know, like we don't approach the landing strip and then turn over. I don't get how all that works. But I'm glad somebody does. Somebody understands hydraulics. Somebody understands, you know, the electrical components. I'm just glad that someone does. So we don't have any beef with that. We have another thing to say. All right, so I wanna just read to you now um, something I saw on a blog uh, this week from a young person that I think really captures well a whole generation. This young person writing about the stuff we've been talking about said, times have changed and we've been so inundated with logical presentations through church and advertisements and salespeople, et cetera, that we've grown cynical. We've learned that no person's logic or perspective is without flaw or large enough to encapsulate the fullness of what is true. Many of us would rather seek the little pieces of truth we find all around us and form a collage that shifts and adapts as we learn and experience more and learn that our perspective, this man said, this young man, is not irrefutable. So what does this all add up to? How do we respond? 
And I think what I just wanna leave you with this morning is the confidence that's in these two passages. That God is going to gather people, that he's not stumped by postmodernism. He's not checkmated by the moral tension in our culture today. But evangelism and apologetics, I think what's happening is that in my view, it's moving spiritual and it's moving, apologetics are never gonna go away, but I think they're receding a little bit from the last 30 or 40 years in favor of a different kind of apologetics and that is the apologetics of a kind of life. So remember we started with Jesus' two feet on earth and how that life was the light of men? So just follow the logic here. We all say we're born again and that Jesus is light and therefore his life is living in us. And I think what is becoming more and more um, winsome and more and more compelling to people today is looking at us and seeing something real. And then once they can see that, people will begin to ask their questions. So how does this work out in real life? And I wanted you to see this uh, Rembrandt this morning. Get out of the way here. This is a, uh, a, Rem, uh, a Rembrandt from 1645 uh, called The Holy Family. If you can't see even on the side, you, you wanna move because you wanna get this. And I think there's just some great clues here for how I think apologetics can work today. So, you know, Rembrandt, as he's want, you know, uh, this is not a nativity scene per se, and you can see that, you know, he has people dressed in the dress of, you know, Dutch, you know, people in 1600s in a very simple room. But the first clue is in Mary. A very well-worn copy, I'm gonna say, of the Bible. And you can tell she's been reading it. But she takes her attention off it for a moment pulls back the covers over Jesus and begins to pay attention to this life, which is the light of men. And you might say that part of the problem of evangelicalism in our generation has been a focus here, and especially on the way Paul explains things. No problem, I love Paul. But our Christian discipleship and our Christian witness will be diminished to the point that we are not actually focused on the light of men. Now all this happens, I think Rembrandt maybe means to tell us, in the midst of very simple, ordinary life. There's Joseph in the back. Most scholars think that he's creating a yoke and maybe there's some meaning in that that he's saying to us something about being yoked to this light of the world. And so our, our apologetics, you might say, happens within our normal everyday life as we presently experience it. As Eugene Peterson says in Romans 12, one and two, your everyday ordinary life, you're eating, sleeping, getting up, going to work, checking on your child life. That's where, that is the soil of both our formation and our apologetics. And the last thing I wanna to say to you before you sit quietly for a moment with this is that we are never alone in this. You can't really see it in this projection, but you can see it better. There's a, light, a real light source that comes from the upper left where those angels are, meant to say to us that we're never alone in this. We're never abandoned. 
and that the gathering that God is doing is a highly relational thing, it's not a functional thing merely. And that as God gathers us, he's, he's relating to us as these shepherding angels show. So wherever you might feel the tensions that I mentioned this morning and any of that sort of recipe that I gave you, and wherever you might feel impotent in relating to it, I think there's some clues here. And as we sit quietly for a moment, you may ask the Spirit, um, are you guiding me to Mary in that book? Are you guiding me as we come to this new year into a more purposeful, focused relationship on the person Jesus? Are you guiding me to Joseph and the meaning of my everyday, ordinary work life? Or are you reminding me that though life is very fearful right now, and while the tension between religion and secularity makes me deeply uncomfortable, that we are not abandoned in this era, but we are companioned always along the way.